Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's podcast is titled Pandemic Poverty and Inequality Evidence from India. So I'll just give you guys a brief background. This is obviously the title of a paper that was co-authored by Dr. Surjit Bhala, Karan Basin, and Dr. Arvind Varmani. Uh, it's an amazing paper, and I came across this, and I, you know, I was like, we have to talk about it. Now, you obviously see Dr. Varmani and Karan on the screen. Uh, Dr. Bhala is not there right now. We're trying to get him. We're having some issues. So I was like, let's start the podcast. So before, uh, before anything, uh, Dr. Varmani and Karan, thanks a lot for coming. Thank you. Yeah. So, Dr. Varmani, I'm going to start with you as we try to get Dr. Bhalla to on. So, uh, so let's start uh, with a few questions maybe for you because I know uh, different people have handled different aspects in this paper. So, maybe let's begin with this. Uh, Dr. Varmani, could you give me a brief background as to what led to the analysis itself? So, where did you guys feel that there was a need of maybe laying out a research paper like this? So uh, we had started uh, a year or two ago uh, by, you know, uh, looking at, uh, well, more than a couple of years ago, looking at the controversy on uh, on GDP growth. You'd recall uh, there was a controversy on GDP growth rate. That's how it first started. And then there was this additional controversy about uh, the survey, the expenditure survey of 2017-18. So both these things, since that time, we have been thinking of ways to look at both these issues, the GDP. So uh, uh, one of the things, just to give an illustration, uh, starting with the GDP that led us to do uh, uh, do some work on night lights, data, etc. We were looking for alternative methods of checking on GDP. So that was on the GDP aspect. And, and then uh, on, on the poverty, etc., the results of that 2718 or the leaked results were so ridiculous. You know, I mean, I have, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years uh, like Dr. Bhalla experience on poverty and etc. And, and the whole, uh, what was reported looked absolutely ridiculous, frankly. So since then, uh, we have been thinking uh, sometimes bilaterally, we tried to do a couple of papers, Karan and I, Surjit and I, and, you know, a mix of the three of us, so to say. So, so that's really where it started. And then it got accentuated in a sense by all these surveys, you know, uh, which were like phone surveys, et cetera. You know, we are used to doing, for example, surveys to us mean a standard set of questions asked in a standard way uh, over time and to get a trend, you know, just doing arbitrary surveys may be okay for public opinion, you know, like do I like party X or do I like party Y, but they are no good uh, for doing solid uh, work on you know either, either uh, GDP expenditures or anything. So so that's really the origin uh, of this paper. All right. So Dr. Varmani, uh, I have a very specific question now. Uh, yeah, in one of the part of the paper. So you start by saying estimation of poverty, including in-kind subsidies, is one of the primary objectives of this paper. You you've mentioned this in the paper. Now. So, and then you later on say these adjustments become important and critical in understanding the policy induced effects on poverty levels. Could uh, So my request to you is, could you explain this a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, you know, okay, let me, let me give very briefly how normally uh, poverty is estimated. Of course, there is a standard uh, definition of, of poverty lines. So Surjit has joined. Uh, but anyway, I will explain and then you can ask his questions. 
So uh, there is a standard definition of poverty line. Here we had the Tendulkar line. There are international uh, lines which are 1.9 and 3.2. And as we indicated in the paper, the Tendulkar line uh, we, we estimated is more or less the same as that 1.9. So uh, one of the criticism which has been made is that this is completely different. It is not just to uh, explain. So, so there is a definition of poverty lines or poverty line. And then uh, surveys were usually done, uh, which uh, are then used to put these three uh, two things together to define how much percent of the population is below that standardized poverty line. So, so for the general reader, you must keep in mind that both the definition must be standard. You can't keep ch changing the definition. Otherwise, you can't get the change in poverty. And secondly, the method and approach of the uh, survey must also be standardized and be the same. You can't use completely two different types of surveys over different uh, type of definitions. So uh, the problem here was that 2000, since 2011-12, there is no uh, survey available, uh, you know, credible survey available to do poverty estimates since then. So one of the things which we did was, and there we applied fairly standard methods, but in very Indian conditions, and uh, perhaps Sujit uh, or Karan will elaborate, uh, is to uh, is to define how, how to project uh, use that data plus data on uh, deflators on on uh, consumer price indices uh, on nominal GDP etc to uh, find poverty uh, over uh, future periods which means from 2012 onwards till 2020 is what we did so that is the first baseline. Now, uh, as far as in-kind transfers are concerned, this is the first time it's ever been done. And uh, in, in a way, you asked me first question. One of the things, you know, uh, when I was in the planning commission, uh, I uh, first initiated the first study on leakages in the PDS. So I worked on the PDS for a long time. In fact, that was my main charge for a long period in, in the planning commission. So uh, uh, the issue was, uh, how is that PDS uh, subsidy uh, incorporated even if you had a survey. Well, it turns out uh, from my experience in the planning commission that it's not incorporated at all. So what, what the survey uh, does is it asks people how much money you spent on food, let's say, right? And only that is taken account of in, the, in estimating poverty in the planning commission, which uh, the last few, uh, po the last poverty I was there and we calculated when I was there. So. So, so what's the difference? So uh, let's say you, you have 100 rupees of food, but you buy it at 20 rupees. The survey will only show 20 rupees. It will not give you that 80 rupees of extra food in a sense, which you have obtained. So we call that extra 80 as the in-kind subsidy. So that is the uh, simple definition for simple. And then we uh, use that to adjust. Uh, we, we adjust the food consumption, so to say and then incorporate it uh, to get a new measure of uh, poverty. I should emphasize this is the first time this has ever been done, whether using a survey or any other method, this so-called in-kind transfer or that subsidy portion, which is not captured directly in the survey, has never been uh, put into uh, the poverty calculations. So that broadly is the picture. All right. So, Dr. Bhalla, by the way, welcome. Uh, it's an absolute honor to host yes. you on the podcast. Yes. So, so I have a question. So, uh, for you, now, 
again, the paper starts with uh, this very specific line where uh, all of you say, in light of no real world data available, how do we get accurate answers? Now, obviously, the paper does uh, start specifically by acknowledging this, and uh, it even goes ahead and tries to explain why and how this can be worked out. But I had another very specific question. So why are food subsidies actually not incorporated in inflation and poverty data as such, Dr. Bhalla? Okay. <clears throat> Two points. First, regarding the opening sentence that you mentioned, um, not every most countries do not have a survey every year. Therefore, what the World Bank does, which is the gold standard for poverty measurement, is it uses exactly the method that we have done. So let's get this clear that the World Bank itself, when you don't have a survey, does use the method that we have done. So I don't think that is properly understood. People think that we are using a method which is of national accounts and so on and so forth, and that is inappropriate. Well, I want to ask you, what, what do you think the World Bank does for 150 countries when it doesn't have a survey? And most countries have a survey every four or five years, not every year. Okay. Now, in terms of why surveys do not include in-kind subsidies in the poverty measurement, that's the responsibility of the analyst because what the survey does and any good survey, it asks people questions and records their answers. So, the NSS survey very clearly asked people, how much food did you buy from the market? How much food did you obtain from the ration shop? And for each of them, and this is rice, wheat, and sugar, for each of these items, it's asked for the quantity and the value. So, it is for the analyst, you know, if it was that the survey authorities did these adjustments, it'll be a, you know, we will ask questions. How did they do this adjustment? How did they do that adjustment? So I don't know of any survey in the world that does the adjustment internally. It's the responsibility of the analyst, of the researchers, of those coming out with poverty estimates. And indeed, uh, in later work, this is one of the, since this, this information is available for India, I do not know whether other countries do it, but India is an important country in the world estimation of poverty that they, the World Bank, should have been doing this forever. We have had food subsidies as to the food ration scheme in operation since about the late 70s. So that is, uh, you know, the World Bank hasn't done it. Other researchers haven't done it. And Arvind is absolutely right. This is the first time any study has systematically used uh, the data to arrive at a correct estimate of poverty. Let me just add, uh, sorry, uh, that uh, I want to say that the, the planning commission was no better. We just used to use the 
and before me, you know, for 70 years, and we did the same. We just took the expenditure data and used that for the calculation. We didn't make this adjustment. So let's be very clear. Nobody did it before this paper. Yeah, not I, the World Bank, not the IMF, not the uh, Planning Commission. Yeah, and that's the important. And the Planning Commission is the analyst. They didn't do it. The World Bank is the analyst. They didn't do it. So that's an important clarification. Right. And and just quickly to add to this, I mean, one of the reasons why this adjustment becomes uh, important now is because uh, there has been an unprecedented expansion of PDS since the Food Security Act. On top of it, in 2020, uh, you doubled the entitlement. So basically, what you did was, uh, in a single go, uh, you consolidated the kind of support that was going through the system. And there has to be a way through which you measure the impact on poverty. So that's one of the reasons why, uh, even if you look at the impact that food transfers make, impact is a lot larger today than it was in 2004 or in 2011. So just a follow-up, uh, 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 any one of you can take this up. So let's say when, if and when these factors are, you know, removed or reduced, let's say, uh, let me create a baseline here, say 23, 24. How much do you estimate extreme poverty to go up or do you uh, think it may not go up at all in estimations? No, sorry. If you... For what difference? Yeah. So did you have the number? What percentage difference does it make in 2021 or... So in the 2021, it is in our paper, and it makes uh, about three percentage points difference, two to three percentage points difference. Um, now, in addition, 2021 was when they also provided pulses, and a you know so think of it this way that the poverty line is about 50 rupees per person per day and what uh, in nominal in nominal terms so when you're providing 35 rupees which is for the pulses that itself adds about 2 or 4% to the incomes of the poor so that also makes a large difference if prior to 2020 pulses were not given but the extra food so we estimate that the food subsidies in total accounted for about 18% of the poverty line for the poor. Now, 18% will lead to a rather large decline in poverty, which is exact. This is for the extreme poor. Obviously, the richer you go or higher up the middle income uh, or the median income, they are only getting 1% or 2% more. They are far removed from the poverty line closer you are to the minimum standard, think of it, you know, I need um, 100 rupees and I'm, I'm, I'm at 90. And to get to 100, if I get 10 rupees, I go over the poverty line. Very simple. So it's a large difference. Um, and it's not, and the, the difference in poverty estimate with and without food subsidies has increased over time because of better targeting. Since, as I said, that the food subsidies have been provided by the government uh, since 1983 from the NSS survey that we know. And at that time, and we've done this analysis and some of it is reported 
in the paper that even the rich were getting uh, the food ration. So it's only, so therefore, and they were getting about something like 70, 80% of the food ration that the poor got. Now, then the Food Security Act came into being, which was in 2013, where the law was instituted, and it started being implemented 2014 onwards. And that restricted that it was only the 50% of the urban uh, population, the bottom 50%, and the bottom 75% of the rural population would get the... 66. Two-thirds. 66%. Two-thirds. Two-thirds rural. Two-thirds of the whole population, 50% for urban, 75% for uh, rural. And that comes to approximately two-thirds for the entire population. And it is... Now, you had the same amount of food that was whether there was leakage or not, the same amount of food was being given to now 800 million people rather than 1,200 million people. So therefore, that automatically increased the transfer to the poor. And then because of one nation, one card, because of Aadhaar, because of better identification systems, we estimate, and there's a, a Gulati article yesterday, um, and we estimate, or maybe it is today, uh, who's a major scholar on food subsidies, that look, this transfer really increased, and we are only assuming that 86% of the right. food that the ration shops got was actually, of, of the food that the each person was supposed to get, he or she got only 86% of the entitlement. So if any, and there are other studies that I've shown, um, and perhaps Karan can allude to those, which show that really the incidence of actual delivery by other institutions is upwards closer to 90%. Right. In any case, we have underestimated the transfer to the poor. Maybe, Karan, you want to expand on that. Right. So, I mean, basically, there, there, uh, people are assuming that, you know, our, there's an inherent assumption in our work that whatever is the offtake, all of it gets distributed, yeah. which is not the case. I mean, uh, I don't know why people are mentioning that when they're talking about it, because it's there in black and white in the paper itself that we assume 86% of targeting. And, you know, there we also justify why we use 86%. Because there's a World Bank study that has a similar finding. They, they reported yeah. that we at 88%. And then there's an Allen Gelb study, which puts it at 91%. So basically, there have been large surveys that have been conducted during this period, all of which show that 90% of the PDS transfers was actually being received by poor people during the pandemic uh, months. So I think it's a very reasonable assumption to make that 86% of it actually reached the poor. Uh, given the overwhelming evidence is that it, it was probably close to 90-91%. There's also the NCAER DMAS survey, which again shows something very similar, that consumption pre- and post-pandemic hasn't changed much for the poor people. And if you think about it, that actually makes sense because uh, for the poor people, their consumption is already so low that it's it's easier to sustain with whatever support can be extended by the government. And 
to the point about what is likely to happen in say 2022 or 2023 uh, the answer is that look the doubling of entitlements was because there was a temporary income shock in the form of covid people lost their jobs businesses were mm-hmm. shut uh, so they so what you needed was a temporary income support which was granted in the form of in kind transfers now as the economy recovers and which it, you know it is gradually getting back to the pre pandemic path i think last year we were at the same level as in 2019 as far as gdp was concerned pfc was slightly lower but uh, over the next couple of months we will certainly be beyond where we were in 2019 so there is a case to revisit whether additional support should continue if it should continue who all should be benefiting from it and for how long it should be continued but as far as the economics of it is concerned i think when there was a temporary shock there was temporary fiscal stimulus that was given in this form and now that the shock has dissipated perhaps it's time to kind of revert back to the pre pandemic uh, norm all right current i have a couple of questions for you too but before that i guess i'll go back to dr vermani and dr bhalla uh, करण को मैं थोड़े ग्रिल करने वाले क्वेश्चंस पूछ सकता हूं मगर डेटा वाले क्वेश्चन सारे डॉक्टर डॉक्टर के लिए रखूंगा एंड दिस इज जेन्यूली बिकॉज आई रेड द पेपर एंड आई एम नॉट फ्रॉम इकोनॉमिक्स बैकग्राउंड सो माई क्वेश्चन कम फ्रॉम अ स्पेस और अ स्टेट वेर आई जेन्यूनली ऑल्सो वॉन्ट टू अंडरस्टैंड इट एज अ ले मैन when i read something like this so dr vala first to you and then dr varmani i'm going to come to you too so could you actually the uh, explain to my listeners and viewers how do you incorporate you know this food subsidy in poverty calculation and uh, then maybe touch upon this if dr varmani i i actually wanted to know how what was this approach of india in terms of the entire redistribution in the pandemic and how it helped so dr bhala first can you explain this whole thing how do we incorporate food subsidies in poverty calculation okay so what we have uh, for any year let's take 2011 12 from the survey we have how much was the monthly consumption expenditure the poverty line is based on consumption expenditure in the month okay for per person and in in 2011 12 it was 806 it was 23 rupees in rural areas slightly higher in urban so we have a poverty line that is you cross that you're not poor now the survey then records that you um obtained 10 um 5 kg one other important aspect of our study that we found out uh is that you know 10 kilograms is the approximate but very stable total consumption per person per month for wheat and or rice so let us say i from the survey from the survey i have that the person got 5 kilograms from the survey from the pdf shop and 5 kilograms from the market from the market the price was let us say 20 rupees a kilo so his expenditure was or the person's expenditure was 100 rupees and he got 5 uh 5 kgs of subsidy of uh, food from the ration shop of rice from the ration shop and at let us say 5 rupees 
uh, a kilo. So the total subsidy to him was five rupees at 20, which is 100 rupees that he spent, and five rupees at five, which is 25 rupees that he spent. So his total expenditure was 200, not 125. So now the total expenditure of the person in that month was 200 rupees, not 100 rupees. And that's, you know, and then Fair. I now have, and then I compared to the poverty line and did that, this additional, this total expenditure, make that individual cross the poverty line. Fair enough. Dr. Varmani, now could you also uh, explain India's approach towards redistribution during the pandemic, which you have obviously touched upon in the whole paper itself? So, um, you know, uh, many countries, uh, US, UK, uh, several European countries really focused on uh, fiscal stimulus. So they were judged by, the, there was a story saying uh, they have 2% uh, of GDP, 5% of GDP, somebody has done 15. We, India deliberately adopted a much more specific and targeted approach. Uh, this is partly because we have a history of uh, issues connected with fiscal deficit and uh, and government uh, debt GDP ratios. Uh, but uh, many other countries in such a situation went wild and, and did the same thing. They, they did not pay attention to the fiscal deficit. So India deliberately adopted a targeted fiscal and monetary approach. I just mentioned that, though we are not discussing and it's not connected to the paper. But the monetary and credit was also targeted to specific needs of the population. And so was the fiscal. So one of the issues which came up and which was debated in 2020, uh, uh, you will remember there was the migrant crisis. So some of us, including myself, were saying, let us go over to a completely cash transfer system, which then one, perhaps I discussed it on the program, where the money could be delivered on the cell phone, right? So if there was a migrant, he would get it wherever he was. The government, I think, in hindsight, and given the results of our paper, very correctly decided that we had a PDS system in operation. It had improved since 2014-15 after the Food Security Act, and that it was functioning well. And there was a huge stock of wheat and rice in the godowns. So the best thing to do was double the allocation give it free. So reduce the price from 5 to 0, double the allocation from 5 to 10, and push it through this whole system. I think that was a very, very good judgment. As I said, I actually was favoring a cash transfer at that point. But the results of our paper have shown that, in fact, that was a very wise decision. So uh, to, to summarize, a targeted approach, there were other targeted programs. We, we don't have probably time to go into other programs. But uh, this is just an illustration of how the targeting was done. I should mention one more thing. Uh, you know, in terms of credit, again, the government, instead of just pushing money out, it focused on providing guarantees for credit. That is actually the economically uh, best way for government to intervene in the credit markets or monetary markets or capital markets. So from theory, in fact, I wrote several papers on this, like 50 years ago or something. So so a targeted approach, targeted credit, targeted uh, 
subsidies where they were really needed by the public, the poor people, etc., wherever they were needed. A targeted approach which has proved very successful, and we are seeing now comparisons being made across the world of how successful this approach was. All right, Karan. Now these questions are for you now. So, how does one compare your study, let's say, with other uh, similar studies on the subject, and also current? What are the methodological criticisms of your paper and how do you respond to them? <laughs> right. I mean, so uh, first let me address the other studies because uh, uh, as you asked initially that what, what got us into this, of course, we were more interested in estimating for 2017 when we initially started and then we presented it at NCAR as well. Because the issue ki poverty in India mein gaya hai was something that was almost, you know, like universally uh, said back then as well. Of course, there was no data to support it, but somehow it was still in the air. People were making all kinds of estimates uh, and they continue to do make all kinds of estimates. Uh, uh, and and this, this kind of uh, bad analysis equilibrium went on even during the pandemic. And the reason I say it's bad analysis is because A, when we were going through a lot of these papers and uh, we, of course, discussed it at length amongst us that there's no clarity about what these other guys are doing. So there's no transparency. We are unable to reproduce their results. We have no idea whether they're using URP, MMRP, you know, the uniform recall period or the modified mixed recall period. Because there are two ways to do the consumption expenditure survey. One is that you go and ask, how much money did you spend in last 30 days on, on different items? And that's the uniform recall period. Then the other method is that you ask how much money did you spend on food and vegetables in seven days? Then how much money you spent on so-and-so items in 30 and then one year? Now, the mixed modified method has been kind of considered to be a better method uh, across the world for a long time. Uh, so, unfortunately, most other studies continue to use the uniform recall method. Even though the Indian government has kind of adopted mixed modified recall method as the official method. Um, and that's why when we are even discussing our results in the paper, even though we present both the results for comparability purposes, but we stress that since the official measure is the MMRP one, that's the one that people should go by. So Pew, of course, is one study which everyone knows, everyone's talked about it. They continue to use URP and they just make the GDP adjustment as it is and project it forward. Don't take into consideration any redistributive impact of fiscal measures and then they project their numbers. They don't give us a consistent time series, by the way. So they give us one number only for 2020. So we don't know what the level was in 2019 and we don't know what level they're comparing it with in 2011. So that's one issue that we have with their study. World Bank, incidentally, has two studies, by the way. One, one came out in February 2022 and one came out in April 2022. So just about a month or so. Both have different estimates for 2017. <laughs> and both share a common author. So so we don't know, I mean, which one to take at face value. Actually, now that, that is sorcery. <laughs> the World Bank comes out with three estimates. Three different papers, including now the latest one. Right. This one. And, uh, you know, and it's, uh, well, it is not sorcery, but it, they need to explain yeah. as to why they are adopting one method versus the other and why for the same time period when they are doing, see, when you have a survey, 
there is no, uh, you just use a survey. And even there, as Kevin explained, they only use the URP survey when the other survey is the official method. Second, when you're making projections, you have to be very clear about your assumptions and, and how you can get three different estimates for the same year, uh, which I believe is 2014, 15 or 2017, 18, is a question I think you should get somebody from the World Bank for the podcast. Yeah, but but adding there, I mean, one thing that's quite interesting is that we are able to re- basically produce or reproduce the 2014 estimate that they have and the 2000 estimate that they have, 17 estimate that they have perfectly for the February paper that came out this year and the paper that came out, I think, in 2017 or maybe probably 15, 16. So we mentioned that in, in, in one table, you know, that, that we are able to reproduce their results. The April paper incidentally came out just around that same time that our paper came out. And that uses CMIE. And the problem with use of CMIE, of course, one good thing that came out of the paper is that they junked the official CMIE weights, which means that they have, that anyone who's using CMIE data as it is probably needs to make an adjustment before they can use the data for any analysis. So that takes wind out of the work that Amit Basole did at Azim Premji University because he just took this survey. By the way, uh, since I'm mentioning those papers now, Amit uh, Basole, checked, there are a couple of papers that have invented their own poverty lines. <laughs> and they use their own poverty lines to make all kinds of uh, uh, estimates without being clear, without being explicitly clear what poverty line they are. And the most interesting one was the use of wage as poverty line, national minimum wage as poverty line. And that was kind of new for, I think, all of us to see that being used because, uh, and I think Arvind sir would probably want to add to that uh, on the use of minimum wage as poverty line. Uh, But coming back to the World Bank uh, CMI issue, CMI has a uniform recall period of four months. So, and this is a well-documented fact that if you increase the length of the recall period, your consumption estimates are bound to be biased downwards because you don't obviously remember how much money you spent exactly for four over a four-month period on items such as perishables, etc. So there again, there are those issues that are unexplained. Uh, but even if even if you know we we take the results as it is at face value. The difference between their their estimates and our estimates is approximately around 10% or so. And they don't make food transfers. If I account for the non-food transfer estimates, the, the gap is like 8% or so. And the difference between the URP and MMRP method in 2011 was 10%. So there is really no difference between what they are saying and what we are saying in that sense. Uh, Arvind sir, do you want to add something on the national minimum wage as, as a use of poverty line? <laughs> I mean, you can use anything you feel like. I mean, it really is a meaningless sort of thing. Um, minimum wage minimum wage is uh, different across states. Uh, it varies with, with time. The adjustment is not known. You know, with poverty, it's all standardized. Poverty estimation as Sujit and I have been at this for a long time, Sujit longer than me, uh, but uh, you know, it's all standardized. There's a method uh, that you have to do certain things. 
and uh, like i think the basic point about is that about transparency you know we have been completely open we've given all our assumptions in our paper and uh, you know uh, and people should then question specific assumptions that is what academics is that's what research is you know but uh, politics and media is different you say whatever you want i mean the, the thing is the impact the sensation which they are focusing on rather than the substance so really there is nothing much to comment on that but the specific point about mmrp uh, i can add from my personal experience again uh, it was during my period in the planning commission where i uh, fought for shifting over to a mixed recall period and what at that time what uh, i had found was that seven uh, day recall is the best for frequently used items the what we call uh, non durables uh, and then 30 day recall period was the best for semi durables and finally durables uh, uh, the best period was one year i mean just to give you an example when you are asking a poor person has he bought an ac i mean there will be such a small proportion that the data there's a lot of fluctuation if you ask him in the 30 day last 30 days have you bought a, a, a cooler right but if you go to a years recall period you'll find actually uh, many people who bought TVs who bought uh, air coolers etc so uh, just to give you an idea of what the problem is of recall period right so uh, there used to be an assumption that somehow it will all average out you know even if we ask for 30 days have you bought cooler have you bought a uh, you know some uh, kettle or something right which you buy very infrequently that is the items for which we have a one year recall period because it it gives you some kind of a nice average even for people who buy infrequently or fewer proportions right so that, that that's why and and similarly uh, you know uh, as karan pointed out and this is very important this is very critical for the future actually this recall period business so so if you ask and they found this all over the world that the longer the period you remember less and less of your frequent uh, type of things right so if you are buying vegetables you ask them how much you bought over the last uh, what, uh, how much milk you bought or how much they actually studies on milk where how much milk you bought during one uh, last week that is much more accurate than if you ask them over 30 days or 4 months you know how do you i remember how much milk i bought for the last four months right you kind of tend to shade it down i mean you know or you try to multiply if you say okay i bought 7 rupees of milk every week then you'll try to think mentally okay four times or whatever right so so that that that's the issue of this recall period which actually the general public may not realize is very very important for proper estimates of poverty so dr varmani and uh, dr balla so first i'll come to you dr varmani and maybe dr balla can also answer this so there was there is this uh, we, we are on the poverty line itself discussion so let's say now we are assuming extreme poverty is eliminated then now what do we assume is the new appropriate poverty line also on on the question of inequality dr varmani you know oxfam had a report and there are other such reports so so what, how do we deal with these two issues then okay let me start with the poverty line so uh, you have to remember that many countries have moved from lower income uh, category 
to lower uh, middle income to upper middle income. So we are not the first. Uh, you remember we talk about how uh, South Korea and we were uh, more or less at the same stage in the 1960s. They moved ahead and and crossed this into middle income and higher income. So the the, the absolute poverty line which is used is very appropriate for low income countries. So uh, once that is eliminated and you go into the lower middle income, and this is not just India, every other country, then uh, if it wants to keep a poverty line, it uses a higher line. And generally that is that dollar 3.2, uh, which we've estimated. So we did that because that is what most countries in the world have done when they moved from lower income to lower middle, which we have also moved over the last uh, uh, five to 10 years uh, last year. So, so it is now appropriate, given that absolute poverty is eliminated, it's appropriate to shift to a higher line, which is more appropriate for lower middle income states. So that, that is the question of uh, poverty lines. Now, uh, there is also this question of multi, you know, uh, I just saw a tweet by a politician saying that we are lying. He actually used the words lie. I won't mention his name, but you can see it on Twitter. Uh, Karan just sent it to me. He's a famous politician. He uses the word that we have lied in the paper. So let me take a minute to uh, uh, comment on that. This multidimensional poverty issue is an issue of focus on whether you should focus on education, health. You remember this used to be a human development index. See, index is good for attracting attention. You say, oh, we fall in the bottom 10% or we are in 50th rank, it attacks attention, but it doesn't tell you anything else, you know, because you can mix and match anything. What, how does it matter? So it's good if you go into the subcategory and say, okay, where is it we are lacking? You know, if India is 120th in multidimensional poverty or human development, it, it, it's irrelevant unless you go into the details and say, okay, we are doing fine on education, but we are health, health is bad or or X is they don't have enough food or whatever, right? You have to go into the details of the multidimensional index and identify where we are lagging. That's the only use of a multidimensional index, okay? It, the, the ranking is kind of irrelevant because it depends on the weighting, what kind of things you put in. Oxfam has its own multidimensional index. Everybody has their own index. The, the indexes are only good for attracting attention and media attention, you know, they attract a lot. But if you are going to do something about it, act on it, then you actually need to go into the details. So that's the use of a multi-dimension. It focuses attention on the specific things which need attention. Finally, just briefly on inequality, that's uh, uh, the, the toughest subject. We do have a Gini coefficient. There's something which uh, I thought uh, that in, in some ways, uh, projecting the Gini again is something uh, which has been done for the first time, I would think. I have not seen any paper. Uh, Karan and Surjit can uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And it, it's not uh, really that accepted. I, you know, we should admit that it, this is also something new. And the way I look at it is it gives you an indication of the trend. The exact number of the genie which is measuring inequality, I don't think should be taken that se uh, seriously because it is not an accepted thing to do that, okay? But I think uh, our paper provides a useful indication of how the genie has moved in the period we don't have surveys, okay? So uh, you should, uh, when you look at it, it's good to look at the trend. You can say, okay, it's gone up a little uh, during the pandemic because there's been a lot of discussion on what 
based on a mix of uh, you know some people have talked about wealth changes income changes ours is very specific it's on consumption inequality and the genie that we have presented in the paper for uh, you know whatever 20 years or whatever it is uh, is a i think a good indicator of what the trend in inequality is as compared to you know oxford or other surveys which completely mix they'll take you stock market data which is wealth uh, they'll talk about uh, use some income data mix it up with consumption and give you all kinds of sensational uh, things but uh, that's not what academics do that is not what we look at we have to have a consistent set of estimates based on consistent definition and consistent assumptions so uh, the genie i think provides that sujit yeah uh, you know inequality um, and the study of inequality is in many ways and i've been alluded to that a mugs game <clears throat> invent an inequality index and you come up with or invent the data and you come up with it now it is the case and what we have seen with our paper as well as others that people just say they look you know i look outside and inequality is going up now one man's ceiling is another woman's floor so i don't think that we have to give much credence to um some observation from somebody sitting somewhere and saying i see inequality going up as ivan mentioned the definition is very important and the first item on the inequality agenda is is it consumption inequality or income inequality or wealth inequality so these are three very different items consumption is a part of income and the wealth get, leads to a flow of income so to try and estimate income inequality from consumption inequality or wealth inequality as to the trends is something you should just not do second consumption inequality since the poverty line is defined on the basis of consumption we estimate consumption inequality not income third various studies have shown for india that consumption inequality good or bad and mind you i have uh, like others uh, observations on whether they are good studies or whether they are bad studies i'm just saying for once there is no difference um in the good studies and bad studies on the trend in consumption inequality in india this is also supported by wage inequality data in the plfs which is the national uh, you know periodic labor force survey for all the years from 2017 18 onwards and they have there are two items of wage uh that are consistent across time in india one is as a casual worker and the other is as a salaried worker so that is often known most people respond to that question whether they got a monthly salary or whether they got a daily salary 
Now, these two pieces of wage inequality are present and therefore income, because you also know how many hours they work. So this is income inequality for these two items. We have data all the way back to 1983. Official Government of India data. NSSO. So PLFS is the old NSSO. What do these data show? They show that this is for about 50% of the people. The other 50 are self-employed. And they also report incomes for the self-employed starting in 2017-18 onwards. But let's look at the consistent measure that we have, because that's the only way we can compare across time. Wage inequality has gone down in real terms. And a simple explanation, you just look around and <clears throat> various people have noted this. So those people who say they see inequality going up by looking out of the window, I want to ask them, just look at those people, take engineers in India. Now, I'm not talking about IIT engineers or those people working on Wall Street. I'm talking about the entire mass of engineers in India that we have the data for, and their wages have not gone up in real terms since 2011-12. It's gone up a little bit, but not by much. Now look at the wages of casual workers. And what you find is their wages have gone up. So one form of a casual worker could be a carpenter, or could be a plumber, or could be various, even um, because of Narega is wage employment from digging ditches or helping out in construction. So those wages, they are the poor. The salaried worker incomes hasn't gone up at the same rate as the, the incomes or the wages of the non-salaried workers. That's another important dimension of the inequality in consumption having come down. Inequality in wages has come down of certainly the bottom 50%. And that's all you need to reach a conclusion that very likely income inequality has also come down. Now, you know, you can take the top 2%, etc., which Piketty likes to do. And I don't know how he gets the estimate for the top 2% or top any, because India hasn't had a survey on income. And uh, we have been pressing, I think, Arvind also and myself, that in NSSO should do an income survey. That's for the future. The fact remains right now, unanimous view that con consumption inequality has declined. And we actually provide an estimate of how much that decline has been. And it's back to the level of 93-94. But this includes subsidies. Um, and, you know, has, and the, the subsidy has it, not an insignificant effect on the broader inequality measure because it is, accounts for a larger fraction of the increase in the incomes of the poor or consumption of the poor. So I, I, I guess I'll give you a brief background, Dr. Bhalla, as to why I asked this. Like, 
I guess what I wanted to hint at in the end is like, how do you arrive at your estimates in this paper, right? Because when the pandemic started, many people could have said, you know, they must be wondering about the impact of the pandemic itself on the poor. And that is intrinsically related to this whole claim about the calculation on poverty or inequality or any of that sort. So could you maybe give an explanation uh, as to that okay. too? What around the world, there were no surveys done during the pandemic period by definition, because of the fact that in no country could they go out and do the survey. And <clears throat> then you have that maybe some countries did some telephone surveys, and that has its own set of problems. So well, your question is very relevant. How do you estimate poverty and the change in poverty in a... Yeah, I was almost sneezing, sorry. Uh, in a pandemic here. Now, again, go back to the beginning. What does the World Bank do when you don't have any surveys? It could be 2016, 17. And there was a survey in 2015, 16. It takes the rate of growth of consumption and it assumes that the distribution has stayed the same. So now for each individual in the economy, I have an average increase in the consumption or average decline in the consumption, and I provide it for every individual. Okay. Now, we for 2020, so 2019-20, we have a baseline estimate of what was the distribution prior to the pandemic. Then there is a decline in average consumption, exactly what you're saying. And the decline is, let us say, 5% or so, which is applied uniformly. So everybody's consumption goes down by 5%. That's the first set of assumptions. Then we have what did the... So if you are a rich person, you go down by 5%, but you're far removed from the poverty line. It makes no difference to your poverty right? Even in the pandemic, poverty makes a difference to your income. But here we are talking poverty, consumption makes no difference to your consumption. But take a poor person, his incomes or consumption has declined by 10%. And the government has given him 10% in terms of food subsidies at a minimum, because we also don't include the, the subsidy through chulas, through housing, and various other things. So really, in many ways, our estimate is a lower bound or upper bound estimate of poverty. But to directly, so I now have what this consumption of this person is likely to have been in 2020-21, excluding subsidies and including subsidies, in-kind transfers. And that's what we report in the paper. And this is, again, let me emphasize, this is very standard. Whether it was a pandemic year or non-pandemic year, there are well-established procedures by researchers or by the World Bank. I keep coming back to the World Bank. So they do it. So therefore, anybody saying, how do you estimate? I'm not saying you are, you know, has to, we are, and we state it very explicitly. I believe it's in the first two, three pages. This is standard approach for the study of poverty in any country at any time in history.
All right. Dr. Varmani, I have to ask this question and then one more question for uh, Karan and then we can ask the live viewer questions. So, Dr. Varmani, would you advocate for the extension of the current food security program or this whole basic income program? If yes, how, you know, how do we deal with the impact uh, in terms of inflation, growth and fiscal deficits then? Right. So there, there are several uh, decisions which uh, have to be made. Let me start with the first one is that the, the uh, extra subsidy and the extra allocation is now being extended till uh, September. The free allocation of wheat and food for 10 kilogram of 10 kilogram. So I think uh, it should end in September and it should not be uh, renewed further. Why? Because in any case, the year which we have gone through uh, by March, uh, the GDP is now roughly 2 to 3% above the 2019 level when this subsidy, the extra subsidy was not there. Okay? The only reason for extending it to September, it was supposed to end in March, is extended to September because uh, the, the pandemic has had some random effects. So there may be isolated pockets of people. So government wanted to ensure that there's nobody kind of left because we don't have information. Remember, pandemic is like once in a century stuff. It's, we can't go by kind of standard stuff we have learned. So as a matter of abundant caution, it has been extended to September. So there, there are some pockets in some geographies, in some sets of people that they do not suffer. But I think there is no reason to do that unless, of course, there's another huge shock from somewhere. There's no reason to extend it beyond September. So let's say we revert back to the old system, which is, uh, as uh, Surjit correctly pointed out, is uh, is 50% uh, in urban areas and 75 in rural, uh, or 5 kg, etc. You know, whatever the system has prevailed. Now, my view is that we uh, th that this was an exceptional circumstance where we had to depend on PDS. I don't think uh, it is likely that we'll have another once in a century shock in the next 10, 20 years. And I think it's important to see the benefits of cash transfers. I mentioned to you the migrant issue, you know, that uh, we still have 66% of the population in rural areas. As the economy progresses, we are going to have more migrants moving to industrial towns, urban areas, etc. I still feel that it's very important to move to a cash transfer system which can be delivered on the phone. So if there is a migrant who is in, uh, let's say, Delhi or Bombay for nine months of the year, then he goes back. That whole thing should go with him. Plus, it can be divided between his spouse and himself and his children. You know, all that becomes very simple in cash transfer system. It's kind of automatic almost. Okay. So, so I still feel that we should give more uh, emphasis on getting this ready before we have the next shock. I mean, certainly we'll have other shocks, maybe not this huge a shock, but there will be other shocks which will arise. We already had the Ukraine shock, uh, you know, which affects GDP and may affect employment. So, so the cash transfer system is something I, I call a welfare stack. Let me not take too much time, which has certain components, which will have a comprehensive cash transfer system, including mobile payment. So that is what I personally prefer. Uh, you know, we have not gone into that much details in the paper, so my co-authors may have different opinions. Yeah. Let me, I think, two clarificative points. First, regarding 
right now everybody is getting and it's extended till september 10 kgs so what the government will remove as of now is the 5 kgs that is given free so everybody is still gets whoever is eligible the 5 kgs not the 10 now what about the removal or change in policy of the 5 kgs that is con- i think i believe in my my opinion is conditional on how long you continue with a minimum support price because the government procures these um wheat and rice and then for the purpose for the single purpose of redistributing it towards the ration shops that's how it started so prior to this whole food ration scheme the government was not there procuring wheat and rice and sugar from the farmers so i think that's a separate policy regarding the five otherwise the government can't be procuring this and then selling it in the market i mean then why the hell are you procuring it so the procurement is explicitly linked to that 5 kg subsidy uh the additional 5 kg was because of the pandemic so the larger question is should the government be and i think that's what uh arvind was alluding to should the government be even in the business now any more of procurement and therefore the msp they can easily transfer the money to the individuals equally just like we have an official program of 6000 rupees per family farm family we can transfer them the money needed uh because we think they earning too little the policy is we should support the farmers well this income transfer scheme through the with the minimum amount of leakage or with the minimum amount of expenditure cost and we, remember we can now do these things previously we couldn't do them so it's not the fault of anybody else it's just the fact technology is advanced and india is at the forefront in the world in terms of these uh, usage of financial transfers etc via the mobile so i think we need to think allowed again you can achieve everything you wanted to do do it more efficiently now and that's what i think uh, ivan was also saying by use of this little instrument and uh, you know we've really progressed fantastically in terms of financial transfers and india is becoming and other countries are beginning to learn from us as to how efficiently we can do so i think as a forecaster in the next 2 3 years maybe 5 years you know the world will change and we will be one of the leaders of the change fair enough uh, current uh, now i'm going to starting live questions also but i'll start right. with you now so i have to ask this question to you where does the middle class go <laughs> in all of this i mean i know your paper was about the poverty line and the a certain section of society but what what is matlab middle class ka kya hoga is my first question right so uh, you know one one of the things that of course we do talk a lot about 1.9 because a lot of the analysis was around 1.9 
But if you look at the 3.2, we also mm -hmm. project some estimates as far as the higher poverty line is concerned. So we see a significant reduction in the number of people who are in the lower middle income group now. And of course, you know, that's an outcome of the growth process. Uh, for a country like India, which had, you know, several kind of constraints, uh, I think it was very difficult to extend support to everyone across the income distribution. So a lot of the support went to poor and, and you know, unfortunately, middle class also is not a very vocal constituency and, and there's no sympathy to extend any support to them. But there is a lot of sympathy to extend support to the poor. So even today you find analysis saying that poverty has increased, you need to step up and spend more money, probably more than I think some three, four lakh crores that is already being spent on them. But that's also not enough according to some people. Uh, but having said that, I think for anyone who belongs to the middle income group, they are the biggest beneficiaries of the growth process. That goes without saying. And when there is a temporary income shock like the pandemic and their you know, income goes down and there's, of course, stress and uh, the, the sense of optimism is not as pervasive as probably earlier. But if you look at it from a long-term view of what the government did during the pandemic in terms of reforms, etc., it was to ensure that a, we preserve the capital stock of the economy and B, we look at improving productivity uh, for future growth. And that's, I think, very important because uh, if we can sustain a marginally higher growth rate over this decade, that will do a lot more for the middle class than probably any handout which could have been extended during the pandemic. And then there's also the question of the counterfactual. That suppose you did do cash transfers even for middle class or if you did tinker with tax rates. Uh, by the way, which we do believe, I think all three of us are in agreement that the direct tax reform is important. But just to say that if there was any increase in fiscal spending over and above what was already done, it is very difficult to state with certainty that the macro fundamentals would have remained as strong as they are right now. I mean, when we, when you look at other emerging markets today, they, there are all kinds of concerns, whether it's inflation, whether it's exchange rates, higher debt levels, debt sustainability, etc. We don't face any of those. So our macro fundamentals are restoring much faster than them. And uh, there's a very likely scenario that this decade we will grow at twice the rate of, of China. So eventually middle class will become the biggest beneficiary of this entire growth process, even if it thinks that it lost out or was given a raw deed during the pandemic itself. But one word of caution, though, I mean, if you really want to be beneficiaries of this growth process, then you need to come out of thinking that you need uh, power subsidy and stuff like that. I mean, you need to stop voting for such policies. Let me, yeah, uh, uh, before I turn it to Sujit, yeah, uh, very briefly, uh, two things. One, of course, uh, current, but it's worth emphasizing again. There's enough historical evidence, whether it's from India or from abroad, that economic growth is the best, uh, you know, solution for uh, for the middle class and the poor, actually. Uh, so uh, that that's uh, one point which he has done, uh, talked enough. But the second part, which is kind of, underestimated is that the, the, the key to long term, you know, forget the short term, which is kind of over for the middle class now. 
uh, in the long term is, is tax reform. You know, uh, people don't realize how an efficient tax reform that includes direct tax code, that includes simplification of GST, that includes customs duty, how important the whole simplified rational tax system is for the middle class because it's something it's kind of obscure economics you know you don't see all the interlinkages etc because you just see how much tax you pay but the efficiency of the system the terms of fairness of how much tax you pay or what level you have to pay eventually depends upon an efficient tax system coupled with faster growth so that, that is what i would emphasize that a middle class should really focus more not just on the tax rate uh, but on the reform of the tax system yeah, I want to just come in on <clears throat> this whole issue of the middle class. And again, my starting point in most discussions is from definition. So first, the bottom 65% are obtaining food subsidies. So in other words, the government already helped them uh, through the entire, so not just the extreme poor, even the bottom 65%. Now, <clears throat> Let's say the middle class starts from the 66th percentile, which is broadly correct. Uh, they are the ones who are, have incomes enough to pay taxes. Okay. Um, and that's about how many people are eligible to pay taxes in India. Uh, approximately 30 to 40%, 35 to 40% have incomes above the minimum uh, tax uh, line. Now, let's look at, and as each of my co-authors have emphasized, growth is a very important aspect, much more important for them than for poor, but obviously it also helps the poor. Look at, what, if you want to know what's going to happen and what is happening, is happening to the middle class, look at export growth, look at MSME production growth. Exports from about 400 million, 400 billion, sorry, in 2019-20 have doubled, will double by the end of this year, will be 800 billion. The poor, some of them will be participating in this process, but this largely accrues to the uh, middle to the middle class and the rich class and if you had the improvement in msmes where a lot of this production takes place and where the lower middle class to the middle middle class resides either as entrepreneurs or as, or as owners or as workers they are already gaining substantially because of this growth process so um and third point on on china versus uh, India and the middle class <coughs> there versus the middle class here, the estimates are that the Chinese growth rate um, it will be stable at around 5%, though many people, 4 to 5%, though there are many estimates that suggest that that's on its way down. That is the estimate of growth. In India, uh, most estimates are that it will be above over the next five to 10 years, above 7%, and it will be trending up. So I think um, the middle class uh, can look forward 
to rather much more enjoyable comparative experience and an ex absolute experience in India than most other places in the world. So, okay, now I'm going to start uh, with the audience questions. Obviously, uh, I guess if poverty is on the decline and as Dr. Bhalla has just alluded to the long-term uh, scenario, then we can obviously conclude. Maybe Karan, I'll start with you because the question was specifically for you too. Uh, given poverty on the decline, so what would you make of the whole employment situation in India then? I think it looks good then, right, Karan? Right. I mean, I... Uh, this issue of employment, unemployment keeps coming back, you know, uh, and, and I have just one very important observation to make, which I have been repeating, and I think many others have been repeating lately, that the employment situation is not uniform across Indian states. It differs greatly and substantially, whether you're talking about unemployment rates, say, in places like Rajasthan, or whether you're talking about unemployment in places like Gujarat. So so that's that's one point to remember. Uh, another interesting point which is related is that the nature of employment is also changing and the geographical location of employment is also changing. So there's going to be a lot of change in the migration patterns uh, that are going to take place going forward. But I think the larger uh, trend is that if you are willing to kind of work, uh, you might not get the starting wage that you would desire but if you are in the labor market and if you stay there for long enough then eventually your wages catch up and this point was made in, in i think a paper by surjit sir with with his co-author uh, tirtho way back in 2019-20 where they looked at prevailing wage rates uh, across different age groups and that's a factor of uh, expansion in education you know you now you just have way too many engineers available in the market. Uh, so it's it's obvious that there is a problem of signaling in the sense that when I have to recruit, I don't know the productivity of the engineer per se. So I give the average wage and then after two, three years, I know which uh, worker is more productive. So their wage goes up and then of course, you know, these differences kind of uh, work out uh, through the negotiation process itself. But bottom line is that there will be a lot of employment creation, uh, particularly in the skilled areas, more than unskilled. Unskilled, of course, it will happen because of infrastructure and, and various other things. But the key unemployment question that I think keeps ask, keeps being asked pertains more to skilled workers uh, because there, there of course, uh, wages have been kind of gone up for the last several years. Uh, one anecdotal evidence is that if you look at the kind of hiring that Deloitte is doing or PwC is doing now, uh, it's, it's substantially increased. And this is another issue that we were discussing sometime back, that services, which were previously deemed to be non-tradable, are suddenly becoming more and more tradable. And what that means is that you will see another round of outsourcing happening to India. But this time, there won't be call center guys, but this time there would be high wage, high educated people in our urban centers doing all kinds of tax, financial, uh, consultancy related work. 
All right. Uh, so, Dr. Bhalla, I actually wanted to expand on what Karan mentioned. Karan did uh, fleetingly mention about the variation in, uh, you know, in the performance of states. So, on that question, Dr. Bhalla, do we have a comparison at the state level in India? Like, uh, let's say certain states that have this double-engine government or whatever it's called, or whatever we want to call it. Different states have different names in India. It, everything and every discussion in India gets so politicized that, you know, I don't know how to even address it. So, uh, what is the data? Are there certain states even within the pandemic and even in your research when we were looking at the poverty data and the impact of the government scheme, have different states performed differently? Well, there is data, there's consistent data and indeed we use uh, that data on uh, state GDP, uh, but that comes with a lag. Um, so, um, Performance of states has been done by many economists. Uh, I myself have done it. I think Arvind has done it as well. But if you're asking for the last two years, that's a bit of a problem because there's delay everywhere. In any case, even before the pandemic, the state GDP data came with a lag okay, um, of about one to two years. So we'll have to wait. But absolutely. Then you have the um, the uh, poverty, the, what is that? The multi-dimensional poverty index survey. Um, and that has at the state level um, for 2015. And the last one was done in 2019. And certainly state comparisons can be done and people have done it and we have done it. So yes, there's abundant information uh, on states and the comparative performance of states across time all the way from 1960. But for the last two years, uh, I'm afraid uh, we'll have to wait maybe a year uh, before the GDP data comes out of the state level. Right. So One let, me, uh, yeah, let me just quickly add, uh, I think we are leaving much time for uh, questions, uh, but very quickly, uh, you know, the, the GDP growth uh, was a decline of minus 6.6%. If you look at the PLFS data, uh, which is available for urban uh, quarterly data, what we find is that uh, employment, the number of jobs or employees went down less than proportionately and then over the quarters rose less than proportionately. So people have got this impression that a lot of people are out of job. But that's part of the connection to GDP. That connection to GDP is very clear if one looks at the available. Of course, this is not comprehensive because we only have quarterly surveys, urban surveys. The annual surveys are delayed. Obviously, we don't have last year, for example, as Sujit just pointed out. But you see this process working. It's that when the GDP growth became negative, employment falls. When it starts to recover, it starts to recover, but lags. Okay. So uh, this impression which people are getting from the first, from the lockdown, many surveys, uh, you know, these telephone surveys from lockdown, it's obvious the GDP fell by 22%. What do you expect? You think there's going to be a whole bunch of jobs there? I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, you know, if you really think about it, it's such a ridiculous proposition that if half the economy is shut down, there are going to be a hell of a lot of jobs around, uh, you know. <laughs> Anyway, so, so the point is that this temporary things uh, must be separated from long term and long term is linked to growth, inclusive growth and of course services and other things. But I just want to, uh, you know, 
leave that so that we can have some time for questions. Yeah, yeah. So the, a lot of questions are honestly, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, on the naysayers, right? The naysayers, who, who, some of whom have uh, even, I mean, you just mentioned as a passing reference as somebody has even called you guys a, a liars, as in you have lied in the paper. Now, like, I... I, and I have to ask you because the audience, I guess, knew about it. So they have basically, you know, main direct naam leke to nahi sakta magar. So Dr. Varmani, I'm googling form. Mein pooch so were these people betting on India failing then? <laughs> Main Sorry, India? <laughs> India failing. Sajid. Look, there's a, and actually it's, a, in a way, uh, Kushal, it's a very important question. And very good question. And you know, back in the um, when was it? 1970s. Um, William Sapphire, uh, American columnist, etc., um, for President Nixon, um, came out with a phrase, which is one of the most uh, greatest phrases, and he termed these people that you are saying, the nattering nabobs of negativism, <laughs> N-cubed. For centuries, well, let's say for the 70 years, um, we've had them in abundance. The words we have, you know, China said lagta. So if we have the world's largest population and Almost by definition, the world's largest population of the nattering nabobs of negativism. <laughs> so, what the, there's no surprise there. And, and, and uh, Amartya Sen said, huh, argumentative Indian. So, you add the argumentative Indian with the nattering nabobs of negativism, and you get this in abundance, which is exactly what you're getting. So, there's no surprise there. So, I mean, William Sapphire, you join the two, one extreme right wing, one extreme left wing, you, you've got this potpourri of views. You know, it's not worth the <laughs> By the way, this nattering above the negativism was a, was a statement by a vice president who was the first ethnic Greek vice president in the U.S., by the way. It, it was a vice president. Very nice phrase. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> so I have already explained to you the issue of, um, you know, the, the uh, multidimensional po poverty. I mean, we were thinking of it. Maybe uh, when Karan is free, we, <laughs> we will get to that subject <laughs> because the data has to be all collected and so on. But anyway, right. so... Um, uh, you know, that, that, that issue is a separate issue which uh, can be addressed and will be addressed. I mean, but this is very specific. This is about, uh, as uh, Sujit uh, keeps emphasizing, that this is what World Bank does, not for India, for every country in the world. Why is there such a difficulty in understanding that? And it's obvious. It's all politics, obviously. Right. Uh, just to add there, you know, people who are kind of hiding behind multidimensional index saying that we should look at that. They might also start criticizing it the moment we use the NFHS 2019-20. Because right now what we have is the 2015 data which has been used for the NITI report. And many of them think this is the prevalent rate 
in 2018 because they haven't read the report which categorically says that this is using the data from 2015-16 no no so karan sorry humne bhi likha tha to bhul gaya that when the 2019-20 data came out preliminary data we used it and but the more um, rigorous level is 2015-16 right and the data shows that there is considerable improvement right 2015-16 to 2019-20 and right. then somebody came up oh but in stunting year right, 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 right. huh that reminds me uh, by the way yeah sorry i i forget in fact john john dreds who is actually not this kind of ideologue i mean i have uh, great respect for him uh, in fact wrote an article which showed this that there was no deterioration if you do it properly and compare like with like for those five states or whatever six states which the data had come out there is no decline or worsening of multi dimensional poverty or uh, the other factors the ones here that were looked at between 2019 and 15 in fact he showed that must give him credit for it unlike some ideologues who yeah. i mentioned i won't mention his name who have commented today no, on twitter <laughs> i meant sir in terms of the unit level data of course we did compare the aggregates and aggregates show a substantial improvement because of course yeah, at, that, at that time the full data was not out no right. so people had just used limited data for five states or something states like or that something, yeah, yeah so i mean once once the unit level data is available i'm sure that at that point there would be another report uh and and at at that point again these guys will now reinvent a new poverty line or a new poverty narrative uh because some people are in the business of keeping poverty an issue in india and you can't do anything about them i mean nattering the bobs simple <laughs> shorthand yeah nattering the bobs and argumentative indians <laughs> a deadly combination <laughs> I I I guess that is the perfect uh, ending to today's discussion <laughs> that <laughs> we started with a paper and we end with the nattering nabobs of negativism and the argumentative indians uh, uh, once again I would like to t- take this opportunity to thank Dr Bhalla Dr Varmani and Karan for coming on the podcast and taking all the questions as much as possible i tried to give uh, give uh, give uh, give them as many questions as possible so uh, to all three of you thank you very much thank you thank you all right guys we'll conclude today's discussion but before we conclude i'd like to inform each and every one of you i still insist all of you should go and read the paper so when you go to the description of this podcast doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio version or you're watching this on youtube there is a link to download the paper in the description of the podcast please go there and download it and read it uh, obviously there are twitter handles of of dr bhalla dr varmani and karan in the description of the podcast too so if you have further questions maybe you can tweet at them maybe dr varmani dr bhalla and karan will uh, answer them i don't guarantee that bit but uh, i can only tell you you can go and follow them and learn a lot i will see you guys next time so please support the charvak podcast subscribe to the channel like the video you can support the podcast on youtube or patreon or or buying the merchandise or through upi i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye